Um, go ahead and turn to page 24. We're looking at the fourth membership question. And that is the fourth in the, in the PCA, Book of Church Order. And that question is, do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Do you promise to support the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability? Now, this is a question that might seem very obvious, and yet one that most people probably would struggle to answer. What is the church? Um, this is a question that, that uh, believers have wrestled with for a long time. Uh, the Roman Catholic Church is going to say they are the true church. And, and what they are going to mean by that is that the visible organization of the Roman Catholic Church is the true church. Um, besides the very obvious fact that the Eastern Church began before the church in Rome in Acts 13, um, the Bible doesn't speak of the church first and foremost as a visible entity. It speaks of the church from different sides, what we could say, different sides. There's only one church. It's not the Roman Catholic Church. It's not the PCA. There's only one church, but that church has a visible and an invisible side to it. The visible church is not everybody that shows up on Sunday and the invisible church, everybody that doesn't show up, as much as we like to think of it that way. Um, the visible church is the organized, external manifestation of the church on earth. Any, any local, organized congregation would be part of the visible church. And the invisible church is only those who are savingly united to Christ from all ages. Those in heaven, those on earth, through all time. That's the invisible church. So when Paul says things like, Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her, is he speaking about the visible or the invisible side of the church? He's speaking about the invisible side. Right, Because we're going to acknowledge that within visible churches, there are people who turn out not to be true believers. And it can't be said that Christ loved them and gave himself for them. So, so there's different ways in which the Bible speaks about this. Now, um, the visible church can be noted from Matthew 28, 19, and 20, where Jesus gives the Great Commission to the disciples, go into all the world making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. That would be one proof text. Um, and anywhere that we see organization, and, and this is fascinating, this is one of the great oversights that so many people have never noticed. Who is the Bible written to? the church. In the Old Testament, it was written to the geographical Old Covenant church that was Israel. In the New Covenant, it's written to visible congregations. Who was Romans written to? The church in Rome. Who was Ephesus written to? The church in Ephesus. Um, when Paul tells Timothy to appoint elders in every city, Timothy's in Ephesus. He's speaking about the organizational government of that church in Ephesus. 
So very, very obvious, very obvious insight, and yet one that is oftentimes overlooked, that God gave his word to the visible church. Um, You see this in Revelation 2 and 3 when Jesus says to the angel, and I think angel there just means messenger, it's probably the elder of that church, the messenger of the church of Ephesus, the angel of the church of Smyrna, the messenger of the church of Philadelphia. So Jesus is giving his revelation from his father to those visible churches. Now, that revelation works its way out to the whole church, not just to those churches, but that's where you find the idea of the visible church. The invisible church, as I've already noted, you find in many places that speak about the elect and those that are savingly united to Christ. Um, Now, why should anyone join a particular church? Why not be a member at large in the body of Christ? This is a This is a very common statement that people often make. Well, I'm a member of the church, so it doesn't matter where I go. Well, there are 100, roughly 150 one-another passages in the New Testament. About 150 one-another passages. And one of the big reasons why membership in a local visible church is so important is it is physically and spiritually impossible for us to fulfill the one another passages if we are not together with one another. When Paul in Corinthians rebukes the church and and some of the people in the church, the rich, for eating and drinking and getting drunk and neglecting the poor in the church and not waiting for them, Paul says five times in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, when you come together, wait for one another. Now, you can't come together if you're not part of a visible body. So while, while church membership explicitly is not mentioned in the Bible, every baptized individual is part of the visible church and necessarily belongs within that body of believers. So that if you happen to live in Ephesus, you would be part of the church in Ephesus. If you happen to live in Rome, you would be part of the church in Rome or the church in Jerusalem. It doesn't mean that these are different churches. There's only one church. But these are the visible manifestations of that church. And to the visible church, the Westminster Confession says, God gave the oracles and the means of grace. So the word the sacraments, and discipline, those are, by the way, the three marks of a true church, is the word faithfully proclaimed, are the sacraments rightly observed, and is discipline affected. I have friends that hate the idea of the visible church, and they kick against it. And when I ask them questions like, how can you submit yourself to the discipline of a local body of believers and its officers, if you're not a member there, they never have the right answer. Well, we discipline each other. No, we don't. No, I literally have never met an individual who said they were part of the universal church, refused to go to a local church, and that individual and their friends are disciplining each other. Never. And so when the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 13 says things like, obey those who rule over you, who spoke the word of God to you, 
they are talking about church government in a local church. There are officers, there are members, they constitute that local church where those means of grace are being carried out. Um, let me stop real quick, and then we'll come back to the marks of the true church, but questions about that, because that's sort of foundational to what we're doing this morning. Okay, now let me say this. You are free to bind yourself to any local church um, that is faithful. So um, you do not have to come to Church Creek Presbyterian. We realize that. That's why we're grateful whenever anybody joins the church and binds themselves to us. There are a lot of good options, but if you are a professing believer, you are required to bind yourself to a local body. Um, And you're taking vows to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability. So you play a vital role in in what that visible church is going to look like. Now, we've noticed marks of a true church are the pure preaching of the word, the right administration of the sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper, and the exercise of church discipline. We're going to have a lesson on that at the end. That's everybody's favorite subject in New Members Class is church discipline. And, and also, I will say this this morning, it's, it's fascinating how everyone, everyone acquiesces with the teaching of Scripture on church discipline until they have to undergo it. And then they magically forgot that they did. So I'll just say, say that this morning. Somehow they magically forget their vows when those vows actually matter. But those are the three marks of a true church. So what I would say this morning is if you find a church you really like, and there are these churches out there, and the preaching is pretty good and the fellowship is great, um, and, you know, the sacraments, they're, they're not super serious about them, but they're there, but they don't exercise church discipline, I would strongly advise you to find another local church. These three marks are essential to what a healthy church is. In fact, if I were to give guidance to my sons as they went off to college and they said, Dad, you know, where should I go to church? I would say, you need to find a church where the word and the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, where the sacraments are rightly administered, and where there's church discipline, because they are the marks of a true church. Doesn't mean that it's going to be a perfect church. There is no perfect visible church. Our Westminster Confession actually says the best churches, visible churches, are subject to mixture of truth and error. The best are. But there are those that are more or less pure, and the purity is denoted by those three marks. Yes? Yeah, that's a great question. It, it all depends. Um, it depends on the nature of whatever's occurred. If, if someone commits a scandalous sin, and we have had that issue happen, where we had to deal with a highly sensitive issue that was egregious in nature. And our Book of Church Order talks about differing views of sin. If a sin is more scandalous, more public, more egregious, right? If a man, for instance, runs around and sleeps with a bunch of women in the church that's not his wife, that automatically makes it a much more public issue. But if you have an issue where marriage is rocky, the husband's not 
fulfilling his husbandly duties and he's a bumchy and lazy and, you know, we're not going to go have a public congregational meeting and talk about how lazy he is and how he needs to get a job. <laughs> but we will deal with that, and, you know, we would want to deal with that lovingly and, and carefully and that would be more private in nature. And our, our Book of Church Order talks about offenses that are more public or more private, so it takes a lot of wisdom to know if and when those issues get dealt with on a counseling confidential level or when they need to be brought. So if an issue does affect the church and there is something scandalous that happens or some offense that's very public in nature, I've only had two in my entire pastorate in almost 15 years. One where we had to have an individual confess his infidelity because he was a public official and it was public that he was running around with women, not his wife. And even though he hated my guts for us having him do that to heal his marriage, we felt like that was necessary. Um, we had a situation here last year that was a very difficult situation. What we ended up doing was having a very private meeting and talking about the matters related to that with just the members in private. So even with that, we're not trying to air everybody's dirty laundry because we all have dirty laundry. Is that helpful? All right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and we'll come back to this, but that's a great point. Uh, Meredith, I just piggyback on that to say, you know, number one, church discipline is a lot more than just punitive action on the part of elders towards someone. Everything we're doing, this is discipline. Everything we do, every Sunday, worship is, we're being disciplined under God's word. And that's not a perfunctory kind of statement. Discipline starts with us being under the ministry of God's word, in the fellowship of God's people. And then as, as Jonathan has rightly pointed out, if there is someone in the body, and this is why we have Matthew 18 and those steps, that you're to go to him privately. If they don't hear you, you're to take two or three others. If they don't hear them, then we're to take it to the church. So there are, there's a process that, that Christ has given us for how discipline is to function. I will say this too, even though we're jumping ahead to discipline here. Um, there are plenty of examples of churches that have abused or weaponized church discipline. There are more examples of churches that have neglected it. Both are extreme errors that need to be avoided. Plenty of examples of churches that were serious about it that weaponize it and do not handle it in a Christ-like way, but there are a whole lot more that just don't do it at all. Mm-hmm. Right, and yeah, I mean, you don't want, you don't want church to become this institutional 
policing of people either. And that's where the weaponizing often comes in, when the elders don't see themselves as fellow church members in loving familial relationship with one another. What happens is it does become sort of, shepherding becomes policing. We're not law enforcement. We're just sheep like everybody else that happened to fill this role of shepherding. Um, and so you're absolutely right. Once you lose that, once you lose that familial, communal, relational aspect, the, the big error you end up going to is sort of this heavy-handed authoritarianism, and that's really bad. I want to avoid authoritarianism as much as I want to avoid sort of libertarian approaches to the church where everything goes. So that's excellent. We'll come back to that. Mm -hmm. So the Presbyterian Church... That's a great question. The Presbyterian Church in America has always had a book of church order. The churches in Scotland had books of discipline and worship and order. You know, Presbyterians really like order. I mean, that's our thing. Like, we're not going to do anything out of order. Um, we, we make sure all those disorderly errors in the New Testament are not even, like, going to even surface in our churches. We're so orderly. But... One of the things that Presbyterianism is noted for is having very clear procedural guidelines. Now, those are not to be in addition to Scripture, and there's a danger for that. They are to be sort of practical outworkings of what God reveals in Scripture. Yeah, I I mean, again, you can look at a history of the development of the Book of Church Order and all of its sort of amendings throughout hundreds of years in in American Presbyterianism. Um, And and our own denomination has a website that shows all the votes. But yes, on a denominational level, on a general assembly level, we have a process by which we can amend, improve, you know, change any part of that— because it is a human document, so it can always be made better. We can't and will not amend the Bible, because that's God's word, and that's foundational. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it's very difficult to change anything. I mean, you need a lot of, a very healthy majority, three-quarters majority, multiple assemblies, all the presbyteries voting, so it's a big, deliberative, you know, collective effort. That's so well said. Thank you. There's always an underbelly to everything because it's a human institution, even though it's God's church, made of sinners. There's always an underbelly. And people can use the Book of Church Order to get their way and play political games. And that's, that's a real, that's just a sad, a sad, you know, mark of 
being fallen in a fallen world. And, and I always tell people, and now we're kind of rabbit trailing, but I always tell people, you know, politics, even in the church, may be inevitable, but woe to me if I ever start to love politics and start to play political games. So I hate politics. It is inevitable. And the Book of Church Order is a political guide for us by way that we do our polity in, in the church. But all good questions. Um, okay, what kind of church membership? Bottom of 25 in Church Creek. There are three kinds of church membership. Our Book of Church Order sets this out. There is communicant church membership. I believe everybody here is coming for that. That means you all have made professions of faith. Almost all of you probably are already communing members in whatever church, even if your church didn't use that language. And that means you've made a, you've made a profession of faith. You, let, me, let me go back. You've received the sign of the covenant. You've made baptism. You've made a profession of faith. And you come to the table. That's, that's what we mean by communicant. You are a communing member. You, you are welcome to the table. In Presbyterianism, in Reformed tradition, we also have a category of non-communicant members, and that would be covenant children who are baptized on the profession of faith of their parents based on the promises God has given to the household. I will be a God to you and your descendants after you. And yet, they, they perhaps are not mature enough to examine themselves. So Paul talks about let a person examine himself and so eat the bread and drink the cup. And so, while the Bible doesn't give an age for when we admit our children to the table, we tend to be gun-shy in bringing them too quickly, not because we question the sincerity of our children, and I believe all my children were making professions of faith at three, as soon as they were old enough to profess faith, they were, but because we want to look for those marks of spiritual maturity. Sincerity and maturity are kind of the two things. And so with non-communing membership, we are recognizing that the children of believers are members of the visible church, but they've not yet been admitted to the table until they're in a place of spiritual maturity to examine themselves. And so they will, with the parents working in conjunction with the elders, determine if and when the child is ready to come and to become a communing member. And again, there's no age on that. I mean, I've had parents with children as young as four ask if they could come, and then other parents who don't want their kids to come till they're 12. And so it just takes a lot of pastoral wisdom working with parents to know when those children will move from non-communing member to communing. And then there is associate membership, and this would be in the case of someone who perhaps is on a military base for six months nearby, and their membership is at a, a solid church in Alaska where they came from, and they're going to be going back there, and so it doesn't make sense for them to become full members of Church Creek, but they want to be faithful members, so we have this provision of associate membership where they can keep their membership at a solid church and yet be an associate member here, maybe a college student or a military person generally. Um, questions about any of that? I know that's a lot. Yes. That's a great question. There, there is a lot of different opinion on how often we ought to do the Lord's Supper 
I personally planted a church in which we did weekly communion because I believe it's a means of grace and it's good and I need all the grace I can get. But, but there is, there's a lot of debate in church history and in, in Protestant history about how frequent the supper ought to be. What is agreed upon is that, and our Book of Church Order very clearly says this, is that it ought to be done with great frequency. So I think there could be an argument made that churches that only do it once a quarter are not doing it frequently enough. But the Bible doesn't tell us that we're to do it every week explicitly. So that tends to be why there's some um, variation on that. But John Calvin wanted weekly communion. Jonathan Edwards wanted it. Spurgeon wanted it. I mean, the better part of the great pastors and theologians were for a much more regular administration. Um, some of the concern, and I'll, I don't want to go on too long here, but some of the concern for people that are not fully on board with weekly communion is they're afraid it will become too familiar, which is an argument that could be made. <laughs> However, you could say, well, then read your Bible once a year because it'll be really special. So, I mean, <laughs> or, or take your wife out on a date once a year. It's going to be amazing, you know. So there, there is a danger. And, and then some, some churches don't want to have it every week because they're afraid that we'll elevate the sacrament above the word because the Lord's Supper is sub subservient to the word. It can't function on its own. If I got up at the table and I just broke bread and poured out wine and didn't say anything, that's not a right administration. It's got to be informed and accompanied by scripture. So there's, there's that issue too. I, I would, no, I, I personally am for it, so... And I would have all your children ask all these excellent questions. <laughs> all right, um, that is a great question. Okay, um, other questions about church membership quickly. Uh, let me just note on the top of page 26, these two headings, and I'm so thankful that these are in here. I did not draft this. This is a long Church Creek uh, tradition to work through this guide. But I always emphasize these two points in the church I planted. Church membership is first and for foremost a great privilege. It's not a burden. It's not shackles on you. It's not meant to be like, you need to be here, not there. It is this enormous privilege that we get to bind ourselves together with God's people in a local body. And, and all the advantages of being under the ministry of the word and the sacraments and and being with God's people and using our gifts. And, you know, the church is meant to be a community as people are hurting or in need that we're caring for one another. And, and it's, it's this enormous privilege. It is the mother, right? If, if, if God is the father of, the, of believers, the church is, is its mother. That, that's the old quote from Augustine. And, and we're nurtured in the church. What a privilege. But it also does come with duties and responsibilities. And, all right, I'm going to ask you this real quick. Um, every time we did new members interviews at the church I was at, I would say, now you are going to take this vow to support the work, uh, the, the worship and work of the church to the best of your ability. You are going to support the worship 
in the work of the church to the best of your ability. And then I'd stop and say, what are some ways that you can support the church in its worship and work to the best of your abilities? Go. Now you, you go. What are some ways? You can pray for the church. Very good. See what gifts you have. Notice the needs of the body. Can give. That's very important to support the church financially. What else? Now, this is the one. Okay. <laughs> Meredith got there. It took us four guesses. <laughs> all of those were right answers, and we, all of those are important. I had a mentor who used to sit with me when we did these interviews, and he'd say to people, what is one thing you can do over 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 again to support the church and its worship and work to the best of your ability just show up just show up if you don't show up you can't support the church in its worship and work it seems simple but this is why we emphasize regular lord's day worship you know the apostle uh, writing to the church um, to the hebrew christians there in hebrews 10 says do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some. It's the pattern of some. Do not neglect assembling together as is the pattern of some, but exhort one another so much more as you see the day approaching. So, so coming together, being together, being present with one another. You know, I've also often thought it's interesting. Hebrews 10 doesn't say, just show up, even though I was joking about that. It actually says, be present so that you can encourage one another while it's called today. So if, you, if somebody just comes, sits, sits in a chair or in a pew, gets up, leaves, never talks to anybody, they haven't fulfilled Hebrews 10. I mean, just saying, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been really tough. Well, hey, how can I pray for you? That's a way to encourage one another or to bring God's word to bear in an encouraging way to one another or to ask how we can bear each other's burdens and can we help? Do you need a meal? Do you need this? Do you need that? Those are all ways we're encouraging one another while it's called today as we gather together on the Lord's Day. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I had a situation where... Uh, friend of my, mine, his wife, for many reasons, decided she didn't want to be in the fellowship. There was no tangible sin. There wasn't infidelity. She just wasn't in a good place. And months went by, and I finally went and sat down with her, and I said, look, you need us, and we need you. When you're not here, we're missing out. When you're not here, you're missing out. You need us, and we need you. And if those members are not present, we're the ones that miss out on that. It's not about policing people to make sure you're coming and you're here. It's about the need we have, to David's point. It's such a massive thing for us to be together on the Lord's Day in worship. Now, you guys can read for yourself the rest of page 26 about active ministry, financial support, We'll come back to submission to the government of the church in a, in a moment again. And then there, how to become a member, which we are doing actively. 
um, we will ask you all to write down your own testimony. And this is important. So this is your one assignment, I think, for today, leading up to the interviews with the elders. Take time, just, to, just a paragraph. It doesn't have to be super long. How did the Lord Jesus bring you to saving faith in himself? Maybe you've been a covenant child and you've, you've always believed in the Lord Jesus. You can't remember not trusting in him. That's true for, for numerous believing children that grew up in believing homes. Or maybe you had a radical conversion like I did. I grew up in a Christian home, lived like a heathen, and then was radically converted at 24. So however, however that's worked out, go ahead and write your testimony down and be prepared to give that um, to the elders when we to go over that with them when we meet with you. Um, that help for you to share your testimony with others. There have been many times that I've shared the way in which the Lord worked in my life with an unbeliever in order to get to the gospel, to share the gospel with them. So that's a good thing for you to practice giving your testimony out to others and asking others. You know, I love when people ask me the question, you know, how did you come to know Christ? That's a great conversation, encouragement to have with other believers. Um, when we come to serve in the church, there's lots of ways to, to serve. We had recently had a service Sunday where we talked about a whole lot of aspects. There are more than enough areas in, at Church Creek where we need you to help serve. Um, whether it is helping Josh with audio-video, whether it's helping the Wiles oversee greeters ministry, whether it's serving in the nursery, whether it's helping out with children's Sunday school or middle school Sunday school, or helping with music or singing in the choir or just taking meals to somebody on the hospitality meal list that goes out. Um, we will do our best in this church to make those service needs known to people so that they are set out for you and that you know that they're there. But I would just encourage you to read through some of the verses there on page 27 about um, spiritual gifts and service in the body of Christ. I've taught a lot about that recently, so we don't need to go over all of that. Um, I will note that I wrote a little pamphlet for Modern Reformation, Core Christianity. There's a few out there, if you haven't gotten one yet, on six, uh, six things to know about spiritual gifts. That might be a help to you, just as you're processing what your spiritual gifts are or what role they have in the church. But um, just want to encourage you to, to read through that if you get a chance. Um, let me say this about giving, because one thing that you'll notice about Church Creek and about me in particular is I, do, I have an aversion to talking about giving, even though the Bible does not. Part of that is because so many churches have abused that. Charlatans have worked over God's people for, for sordid gain. And we do not want to do that. Um, I will say this. It is our responsibility to both serve and give. It's also a privilege to serve and give. And the Lord takes note of our serving and our giving. Writer of Hebrews says, the Lord is not unjust to forget your works of service. 
And the apostle calls the members of the church to share in this gift of generosity and notes that when we do that, the Lord has a way. This is not health, wealth, prosperity, but I have known in my life that the more I've given and the more I've served, the Lord has a way of heaping it back on you to continue equipping you to do that. And the more people keep what is what they ought to be giving, the more they kind of lack. There can be a stinginess God certainly does not honor. Um, I'll also say this this morning. I have heard many well-meaning Christians say things like, well, there's lots of ways to support the church, and we choose to serve. Other people may choose to give. I would discourage that line of faulty reasoning. We are called to both give and serve. Now, let me say this. I will never know what you give. I don't want to know what you give. Because if I know what you give, I will look differently at people. So I don't want to know who gives. I just want to encourage you to be faithful in that grace. Um, Yes. You can can get your checks to the church any way you want to. (laughs) No. No. I know there are some pastors that say because it is an aspect of worship, it's good to be doing it in worship. We live in a bit of a different day where we do have so much online giving and so many avenues to give. We're just, we're just thankful if the people of God are giving as an act of worship. So, um, Right. Right. I, I do not go down any, <laughs> any of those. Give faithfully, give generously, give joyfully. Faithfully, generously, joyfully. Serve faithfully, generously, joyfully. Now, let me make one more statement. There are some believers, I'm probably in this category, my wife is in this category, who do not know how to say no to service until they're really no good to anybody because they just do everything. We are not looking for that. We're looking for faithful, faithful service, joyful service. But we don't want anybody to get worn out wearing every hat in the church. And so you have to gauge where your life circumstances are and what would be a manageable way for you to serve and where your gifts would best be used and plug in. So I just want to go the other way and say, while some people neglect it to the harm of the church, it can harm the church if you do too much and you're not pacing yourself or caring for yourself spiritually in service.
we actually may have suspended that, but we do try to communicate throughout the year on where we're at in different formats. So we'll have a vision banquet in January. Y'all were not here, I don't think, last January. So we have a big kind of state of the church vision banquet, third Sunday of January. And that's where we'll present the budget. And you'll see all the line items. I mean, we want to give full transparency. What's in the bank, you know, all of that, just so there's absolute transparency. Um, We have a bookkeeper that is in, yeah, Baton Rouge maybe, Beth. She used to be a member of this church. She works with the deacons on keeping all the financial reports, all the, she does all the, you know, reimbursements and remunerations and check cutting. Um, She is very on top of it. I mean, to the point where we get emails a lot about where do we put this? I'm going to have to figure out where to put this, but she's excellent. Um, The only two things you all will vote on as communing members in this church will be calling and releasing your own officers. So senior pastor, associate pastor, ruling elders, or deacons. You all will vote on calling and releasing them. Yeah, any property, we're not going to just do something. So even the build-out we did last year, so I got here in June of 21. Is that right? June of 21, 6-6. And then we had that build-out done almost a year, June or July of 22, but that was approved by the congregation to use X number of dollars for that. So we are very sensitive to not making big decisions on financial things without the congregation supporting those big decisions. Because at the end of the day, as David has noted, it's the congregation's giving. It's the congregation's property. It's not ours. You know, it's not the PCA's. It's our congregation's property. So we do try to work. But what we don't do is we don't act like a congregational church. So in a congregational church, the congregation's going to vote on Do we paint these walls white? Do we change the, I mean, we're getting nothing done, y'all. If we do that, like, I mean, a snail is moving faster than us. And that's also how a lot of churches divide over just picky preferences. So we try to just handle a lot of the, what you might call ideophora, indifferent decisions on, You know, Jonathan's crew takes care of the landscaping. We don't run by who are we going to sub everything out to. We just, and you all, there is a measure of trust you have to have in us. And that's something I would say here is, as you consider your role of supporting the church in its worship and work to the best of your ability, there is a measure where you're saying, you know, I'm going to trust the elders and the deacons to make wise decisions on those things that don't come to the congregation on the whole. But as David noted, I want to come back. If we ever make a decision and not, let's say you think this is supremely unwise and you're at home getting all worked up about it because that's what we do. We get worked up. (laughs) This is so unwise. You have a responsibility as a member 
whoever you are, to come to us and say, I really think this is unwise. Y'all are making this decision. Have you thought about this? Because we have blind, blind spots and need, you know, we may need the counsel and advice you all bring that we don't see something on some decision. So, yes. Oh, the first is on officers. The second is what David said on property, any major property renovation. If we invested money, I would think that would be something. If we wanted to invest $200,000 in doggy coin, probably not a good idea. I'm just saying, like a year ago, maybe we would have thought about doing that two years ago. You guys might be like, yeah, we're not going to do that. Crypto is a little too volatile. So I don't know that we would bring that before the congregation, but something major financially having to do with property, which is what our Book of Church order really limits that to. So, all right. I know that you need a break, and I know that a couple of y'all have to go. So here's what I'd say before we break. If you have to leave right now, um, take time to read through this. Lord willing, we're going to have this recorded, so if you've got to make up the remaining segments, um, we just ask that you watch those and that you really do take time to go through this. It wouldn't take you that long. Excellent. Okay, very quickly, you have two offices in, ch in the church. You have elders and deacons. Those are the only two offices. In Presbyterianism, we are going to say the Bible only gives us two offices in the New Covenant. They are, they are distinct, and yet they are both honorable offices that Christ has established. So you, we want to resist thinking elders are up here, deacons are down here. They are distinct and equally honorable offices. Um, those two offices flow from the, the one lordship of Christ. And, and I had never heard this growing up, but, you know, the Lord Jesus is the savior of soul and body. So he raises the little girl from the dead, and then he gives her something to eat. Right? He's the savior of soul and body. He's the savior of the whole of you. He, he not only dies to redeem the disciples, he stands on the shore and makes food for them when they're hungry. He feeds the multitudes with the fish and the loaves. He cares for the spiritual and the physical financial needs of his people. He cares for the whole person. He is the, he is the only one who can be the savior of soul and body. And so out of his fullness, he has distributed these two offices in which he works for the good of his people in his church. One of those offices is spiritual in nature, eldership. One of those offices deals more with physical, material, financial body, if we could say that. One deals with the soul, one deals with the body. They are distinct and yet highly honorable. You see this distinction played out in Acts chapter 6, where there's a dispute over some uh, Jewish widows think that the Greek-speaking widows, I'm sorry, the Greek-speaking widows feel like there's been an injustice and the Hebrew-speaking widows are getting 
better handouts up front and better distribution, and they're being slighted. And so they all come to the apostles, and they say, do something about this. And the apostles sound really harsh. They're like, we cannot leave the ministry of prayer and the word to wait tables. So they, they're recognizing the spiritual side of their office, which is what elders would do today. Prayer in the ministry of the word, to wait tables. So choose from yourself seven men full of the Holy Spirit, good reputation, and appoint them to this work. And that's really a picture of the diaconate. So in a local church and in this church, what we try to do, it's not always as perfectly divided as you can, we try to divide those two, those two responsibilities. So the deacons would have primary care over the oversight of the property, the upkeep of the property, the physical needs of members, the material financial needs. If a member ha had struggle paying bills, they could go to the deacons, and there's a process by which the diaconal assistants could come to be a help to them. If somebody's really struggling with a spiritual need, then you would come to the elders for that. And so we kind of want to keep those as distinct as we can so we can both fulfill our, our roles. Is that helpful? Yeah. Yeah, so this is where it gets a little complicated. I'll go as fast as I can for you. So we make a distinction between teaching and ruling elders. David Sr. is a ruling elder. I'm a teaching elder. On one level, an elder's an elder's an elder. There's only one office of elder. The qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 apply to every man that's going to serve in that office. We draw a distinction between teaching and ruling elders um, based on a passage in Timothy in which Paul says, um, those who rule well are worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. So all elders rule spiritually, shepherding, but there's a subset that Paul seems to intimate that give themselves fully to the work of pastoral ministry. So that's where we get that distinction. What the PCA jokingly says is that we're two and a half offices. So deacons would be one, and then teaching and ruling elders would be one and a half. <laughs> but we're really two office, elder and deacon. Every elder gets a vote, both on the session. So we, we have a plurality of elders. In fact, I don't really even get a vote because I'm the moderator. I can break a tie, but they, they end up voting. I moderate. Um, but we believe in a plurality of elders. That's vital to the health of our church government. So a plurality. As much as I want to have four votes, I don't get four votes. <laughs> uh, technically, yeah. And then in presbytery, we all get a vote. And in general assembly, if we're representatives there, we get a vote. Associate pastors get votes. The only pastors that don't are assistant pastors. And that's because they are hired to fill a specific sort of, they're like a staff member. They're hired to fill a specific role for a specific time where when a congregation calls a, a senior or an associate pastor, that's not a biblical category, but you're calling teaching elders. When the congregation calls them, the view is this guy's going to be our pastor until we release him. Could be forever. Um, with an assistant pastor, the session hires him 
to be a pastoral staff person that oversees specific things for a specific period. So maybe you hire an assistant pastor with the view of three to five years helping out in this area, but then you know he's going to move on. It's Right, the congregation would not vote on the assistant, but an assistant can be hired and fired by the session. So it's not an ideal, it's not an ideal arrangement, but it's us kind of trying to figure out a functional way to do ministry. So in the PCA, we believe that the offices are limited to men and women. Um, I'm sorry. Erase that. That's new. This is a different kind of Presbyterian church. Man, I didn't take you to be that. No, no, no. We believe that we do not, let me say this, we do not believe that men can be elders and deacons and women can't. We believe that qualified and called men can hold the office of elder and deacon and no one else can. That's an important distinction. We don't look out and see every man in the congregation and say he could be an elder or a deacon. Now, could he potentially be? Sure. But the only people God puts into office are those that he qualifies and calls. He gifts, qualifies them, their life meets qualifications generally, and they're called to hold that office. Um, the Bible is very, very clear about... Um, uh, male-only eldership, if we can put it that way, there, there is different opinions on whether women can hold the office of deacon, even in the history of the Reformed tradition. Um, the RPCNA, the Covenanters, they only sing psalms and they don't have instruments. They have women deacons. So there are, there are these sort of um, intramural differences in, in denominations. Where the PCA falls, where I would be, is that I, I don't believe, and we don't believe as a denomination, that, um, that the passage in 1 Timothy that says, likewise their wives, speaking about deacons, could be translated, likewise women. And that would be the only place that, that churches that would ordain women to the diaconate could go to say, Phoebe's called a diaconia, which is just a general term for servant. What I will say, though, is we are eager to, and, and every church I've ever been in, the women in Christ have been the greatest benefit to the church. Um, we are, we in no way whatsoever want to, um, want to, what is the word I'm looking for? Quench, diminish, downplay, discourage, um, sisters in Christ from serving to the full. And even our book of church order says in, I think it's chapter 9, uh, section 3, it says that it's right that the session appoints godly men and women to assist the deacons and at times the elders in carrying out ministry in the church. So an ideal situation is to have those qualified men that God has called to fill those office, but their job is to equip others to be involved in ministry in the life of the church. And I, I just say this too, I mean, how often the Apostle Paul is praising women in the church for their service, praising them for the absolute necessity of their ministry among believers. So 
I do want to say that I don't, I think we want to avoid the error of patriarchalism that quenches godly women from using their gifts to the full, but we also want to be faithful to what we believe the scriptures teaches about who is qualified. Mm -hmm. Yeah. We just have elder on here. What would be First Timothy three eight through thirteen? That's right. Yes, Craig. That's a great question. Thank you. Um, all right, let's take a break, and we'll reconvene in about nine minutes. Guy Waters, that's a great book. Well, thanks, guys. And we'll be back in nine or so minutes, if that's right.